Welcome to the School of the Word. This is Lesson 74 in our teaching series, As in the Days of Noah, titled Summary of the Book of Revelation, Part 9, Chapter 4, Being Called Up. Our teacher is Alan Smith. Amen. We're glad you're here as we uh, approach the Word of God this morning and see what the Lord has for us. And um, I'd like to continue on. I'm trying to move faster, and it seems like the faster I try to move, the slower I am. And uh, so you can pray that I'll learn how to do better. So the title, of course, is uh, As in the Days of Noah, So Shall Also the Coming of Son of Man Be. And this, uh, I've tried to bring the understanding and the enlightenment is when you read your New Testament, it's in light of this scripture here that as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be, which puts us in a situation of always looking for His coming. Amen. And as we're looking for His coming, if we're truly anticipating His coming, then that sets our attitudes. It sets how we respond to life and it tests and sets how we respond to the Scripture. As we're setting the, the spiritual atmosphere for this teaching this morning, I always like to do a little something about the author, which is John. He was on the Isle of Patmos. He, was, he had a brother. His name was James. It was an apostle. I think he was probably killed in one of the first martyrs. And then John, we see, probably died of natural causes, we're thinking. Some say not. Uh, but I want to, in light of John writing the book of Revelation, why John? Why did God pick John to give this revelation to? And I want us to look at that for just a moment uh, to see what sets the spiritual atmosphere. Is John the only one that's to get revelation, I guess, is a question that we can ask ourselves, or can any of us get revelation from God? I'm not saying we would write the book of Revelation, but nonetheless get revelation just the same. So let's look at this. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question here. How do they pick a Navy SEAL to be in SEAL Team 6? It's a good question, isn't it? How, how do they go about picking? Well, just so you'll know, uh, SEAL Team 6 was actually retired in about 1987. They now have changed their name to a, some other acronym of some type. But everybody still refers to that group that they've again given a new name to. Everybody still calls them SEAL Team 6. So it didn't do a whole lot of good to drop the name unless you're internal in the Navy. Uh, but nonetheless, it's SEAL Team uh, 6. We know this is the group that went in, you know, with bin Laden and a lot of the... What happened with the SEAL Team it came about because of all of the uh, turmoil in, in the world, really. And uh, I think it was, uh, who was president at the failed attempt? Jimmy Carter, I think, uh, went into his presidency. They went into, you all know the story, to retrieve some Americans. It failed. It was out of that that the decision was made to come up with, we're going to have to have some special forces to deal with the terrorists of the world. And so we find ourselves as Christians in this world dealing with the terrorists of hell. And I know as we'd love to see the world as heaven, but it's just not. 
It is a place of spiritual terrorists. But I want us to look and make a comparison here to this elite group called SEAL Team 6. How do they pick them? There's the SEAL on the right side. Now, they do two things. They have just a kind of a uh, one thing about the SEAL team is uh, they have this understanding of keeping things very simplistic, not too complicated, to the point, simplistic. So when they're evaluating uh, someone uh, out of the Navy or whatever to be in this, you can be a SEAL and not be in the special team of six. So the first thing they're looking at is performance. They're looking at the performance of the individual is uh, what they're looking at. Then they kind of graft it with trust at the bottom. So, so they're looking for two major components. One's performance and the other one's trust. Now, as you're doing that, they have what they call a group high performance, low trust. You'll see it there. HPLT, high performance, low trust. So you're pretty much graded on these two categories. There's another group called low performance, low, low trust. And there's another group called high performance, high trust. Then there's another one intermediate here called uh, kind of a middle, middle grade, mild middle grade performance with high trust. And then the fifth one is low performance and high trust. Now, so these are the categories that they tend to put every applicant that's coming in as a possibility to SEAL Team 6. Now, the low performance, low trust, they do not want in this uh, selected group of people to serve. Low performance, a low trust. Now, they want high performance and high trust, which is a hard one to achieve. Uh, they found that the higher their performance, you would tend to have a person who's less trustworthy because they'll just go for broke all the time. But nonetheless, what they're looking for is high performance and high trust. Now, now watch it here. They would rather have, if they have to, they would rather have medium performance and high trust or even low performance and high trust than a high performance and low trust. I'm going to give you just a second to figure that graph out. They would rather have a medium performance high trust, even a low performance high trust, rather than a high performance and low trust. And the reason is a high performance, low trust, this person is a toxic person and team leader. And it's kind of amazing, isn't it? But they break it down in evaluation to these two things, performance and trust. They really want a high performance, high trust, knowing that that one's hard to achieve. So as they keep scaling back, they'll take a medium performance, high trust. They'll even take a low performance, high trust over a high performance person that has low trust. So there's an issue that's arising here. It's paramount to be in the elite team of the world, 
SEAL Team 6 is the most elite uh, team of the world. Now, this is the way the greatest team in the world evaluates its team. The problem in the church is we put performance over trustworthiness, which will get you killed. I hear it all the time. Alan, this person needs to be on the worship team. They got a wonderful voice. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm not saying that their voice wouldn't be good, but are you judging the situation on performance and you don't even know the person? Don't even know their trustworthiness or if they love God or... No, we tend to look at performance. If you get a job, they go... There's not even a test when you go to get a job. Everything's about your performance. There's not any questions about your trustworthiness. But yet the greatest team in the world knows that trustworthiness is greater than performance. And so it is in the church, we tend to be like the world, don't we? Well, I think that person can preach better than the other one. I think this person can sing better than the other one. So therefore, that great performance qualifies them where they need to be. Now, I want you to think about something. Jesus chose John. Jesus chose John. Now watch it here. It says in Revelation 4.1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. A door standing open in heaven. John 21.7, That disciple whom Jesus loved. In other words, everybody knew, the twelve disciples knew, well, John's the one that Jesus loves. That was the go-to word. And... Uh, Jesus found John as being very trustworthy. He did not view John on his performance. He viewed John on his trustworthiness. And he said, John's the one. Everybody said, well, John's the one that Jesus loved. Kind of sarcastically even. So why, why do we say that? Well, you've heard me teach this before. When God says he loves us, our response is not, God, I love you too. Our response is, God, I trust you. So according to the Scriptures, the true response to love is trust. That's the reason in a marriage situation, if somebody breaks the vow somehow in a marriage, uh, what, why, is, why does that destroy the marriage? It's because the trust is broken. Right? So trust is an issue with love. Trust is the response to love. Jesus said he loved John because he trusted him. John trusted Jesus. And evidently he had a very high level of trust in his life. I said last week that the devil and his demons believe in Jesus. And I talked to somebody this past week and they said, Well, Alan, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I said, yeah, but do you trust him with your life? I said, the devil's belief in Jesus. We think that we got brownie points because we say we believe in him. When that word believe is a very deep word in the Greek, it's more than I disbelieve. It's not a uh, first heaven belief. You believe in something to the degree that you trust it. That's how you know if you're walking in true faith. So I'm saying all this to say there's a reason that Jesus gave John the revelation. And the reason is 
He trusted him. As we see that to receive revelation from God, the first and I think the most important, I have people all the time prophetically say, well, Alan, I want to be prophetically gifted. I want to see what God's doing. I want to see all this sort of stuff. And I tell them, well, it's based on your relationship with Christ. Totally based on your relationship. Uh, the more you, tr you trust Him with your life, the more Jesus one day can say, well, I, I can trust Him with this revelation. He didn't. Jesus doesn't give a revelation then says, okay, what do you think about that? That's not the way this thing works. Jesus doesn't. If He knows if you're going to question the revelation, you're probably not going to get it. He gives a revelation to somebody that already trusts Him. Uh, when I, I had a dream and I was called into ministry, whatever that is, and I've told this dream here many times, in the dream I asked uh, the angel of the Lord, said that the Lord's calling me into ministry, and I said, well, what am I? He said, you've got to say yes or no first. So the commitment comes first, then the information. Can you see that? The commitment, then the information. And as Christians, we walk the Christian life, but wanting to move on with God and to hear God and to get the revelation of His Word is surely like being a Navy SEAL. The only difference, I guess, is when we fail, of course, He forgives us. There's no doubt about that. But when we fail, it's because of our lack of trusting, right? So our failures just is just a test for us to see how much we trust Him and His Word. And so anyway, I want us to see why it was John chosen to get the revelation. It's because he was trustworthy. Now, in any relationship, trust is the issue. If you want the greater, I've had people come to me and say, well, our marriage just isn't working. And I'll say, well, you're just not trusting each other. Experience in a marriage comes on the level of how much you trust each other. That's a wonderful place to say amen and you missed it. <laughs> Did you hear what I said? Test what I say. Test what I say. But the... Experience of a marriage is based on how much the two trust each other. And life has it, if you will, that uh, you can't, and let me even say this, you can't prove to someone that you're trustworthy. You just live a life that is trustworthy. Some people... I don't care how trustworthy you are, you can't convince them. There's no way you can convince them. So it's not about convincing, it's about living. If you live a life that's trustworthy, and I'm just saying that trustworthiness is a big deal in spiritual things. It's a big deal. What comes with trustworthiness is commitment. Right? When you, someone that's trustworthy is somebody that is committed to what they say. And so, a marriage again, if, if you're not committed in your marriage, 
There is no way it is impossible to convey the idea of trustworthiness. Right? Is everybody with me? If we want Christ to see us as trustworthy that He might reveal to us uh, spiritual things, it's important and necessary that we're committed to Christ. Uh, you see, grace is wonderful. Grace is wonderful. Grace allows us to get up and start over. But you don't overuse grace to get the revelations of heaven. That's right. Grace gives us the opportunity to pick up. Slate's clean. Let's go again. But a lot of times we want to go from grace to grace to grace to grace and we don't understand what well, God's not speaking. God speaks, but He has this little thing of wanting to be in relationship with you. And when we're in relationship with God, the greater the relationship with God, the greater the experience with God. And so therefore, the greater the revelations from God. Revelations from God is an experience. Now, as a church, we're kind of what we call an experiential church. We believe in faith. We believe in knowing the Word of God. But we also include experiential Christianity. We believe that we can have a personal encounter with God now. John had a personal encounter in that cave, I guess you could say, he was in. He had a personal encounter with God. Jesus trusted him. And he said, John, sit down. We, I'm going to tell you some stuff, and I want you to write it down. So John wrote those things down as he heard the Lord. He had a vision of Jesus in there, and he heard that. Then as we get into chapter 4, it says there was a door. Oh, you looked up, and there was a door open. Now, the door that's being opened into heaven, as I've said before, you are sitting in a chair. Right, the first place that I know of chairs being mentioned are, even, are in the Word of God. And you can go to Revelation 4 even. It says that they were sitting. They had elders and they were sitting. So, so we know that people were sitting in heaven. Now take something as simple as the word sitting to make a point. People were sitting in heaven and we're sitting here. And they're sitting in a chair, it says. And you're sitting in a chair. Now, I submit to you, there's, one, there's probably not a single person in here that came in and looked at that chair, looked underneath it, behind it, and around it, and said, I wonder if that chair is going to hold me up. We just assumed that the chair was going to hold us up. So as a Christian... Could we trust Jesus more than at least we trust a chair? In other words, we came in and sat in the chair, didn't give it a second thought. But we sat in it, thinking, having faith, it would hold us up. But yet when it comes to God and to Christ, it's like we have to back up and judge if we can trust this or not. My question to you is, do you trust God enough or more than the very chair you're sitting in. There again, I'm just trying to make it understandable. And so we find that as a chair in heaven, and they were first seating, sitting in heaven as they were here, as we do here. So heaven, and these pictures of heaven, if you will, or these terms, a chair, a door, 
is truly symbolizing a door. When it speaks of a chair in heaven, it's fully speaking about a chair, sitting in a chair. So when you get to door, the door is just as real as a chair. It's a real door. Now this door that we're experiencing open into heaven as an experiential church as we are, we can come into a service. Let's say you can do it at home or anywhere, but I'm saying you can come into a service and walk in the doors and you say, I feel the presence of God. Anybody ever done that? You could just feel the presence of God in, a, in here or in a gathering or it, anywhere, but, you, but you're walking into a consciousness God's in the room. God is here. And that consciousness at the beginning of our life kind of invades us upon salvation. It's like His presence is near. He invades us with His presence almost against our will. He just invades, invades us. We have said yes to, to Christ. Christ evidently is kind of ecstatic about it because He's all around us. He engulfs us in His presence. I submit to you that when you see an open door of heaven, if you open a door to heaven, do you not believe that it would have to that the presence of God would have to come through that door? If, could you imagine opening the door of heaven and not feeling the presence of God? So that leads us as a prophetic people to understand when we feel the presence of God in this place, the door of heaven is open. Are you with me? So, as believers, we don't want to fight this spiritual reality about the presence of God. Because the presence of God is a part of this relationship of God loves us, I trust you. And the embrace that we can experience in that is His presence. Now, give you a harder one. Explain to me His presence. This, this is not words. I mean, this... You ever tried to share it with somebody and you're like, I, 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 that's, that's the only time I sounds like I'm speaking in tongues. <laughs> it's when I would perhaps try to explain the presence of God. You just can't do it. It's, uh, you just know it is. You feel loved and you feel peace. And I get this feeling everything's going to be all right. That's what I get. It's like everything's going to be all right. I feel the presence of God at a higher rate. So what I want us to consider is when we get to chapter 4 here, it says, And this uh, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard, as it were, as a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, I will show you these things which must be hereafter. So we see when the door opens that there's a presence released. And when you feel the presence, you automatically know that the door's open. Are you, can you hear that? And so what happens with the open door? You have a voice and you can hear it. He says it can be as loud as a trumpet. 
the voice says, come up hither. So when we are experiencing the presence of God, there again, I'm hoping that you make the correlation between a chair and a door and a spiritual door. I, I just submit to you, is do you which do you think is the most real, a chair in heaven or a chair here? For some reason, I feel like a chair in heaven's more real. I feel as though a door in heaven's more real than a door here. So God gives us these illusions, if you will, somewhat, or these metaphors. No, he gives us these pictures. It's not even a because it's real. That's the part we got to grasp. It is real. Can't see it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It doesn't say not felt. You maybe can't see it, but you can feel it. So we start learning that our spirit man has a feeling. If God wants to embrace us in relationship in that feeling, would Satan not want to arrest us in a place of feeling? So where we sin, we sin is because we're trying to fulfill a good feeling, we say. It's a feeling. And the enemy is trying to pervert what was given to us of God to be able to detect His presence and His revelation. So you can see how trustworthiness is important in revelation. Lest God give revelation and we mix it in with our feelings. Some's God, some's the devil. we got all this huge mixture trying to figure out what's God and what's not. All right, just test what I say. Now let's move on. I want to move quickly through this chapter 4 and 5, actually, because I'm trying to get us to 6. Actually, I believe it or not, and I will hold to this, I'm just doing a summary of the book of Revelation. I don't, I'm not doing an in-depth thing, but chapter 4, a little bit 5, I've got to hit it a little bit closer in because you go from the seven churches and you jump right into an open heaven. And John's in this open heaven state, and he starts seeing. You see, from four back, Revelation 1, 2, and 3 is what has happened and what is happening. Now he says, I'm going to take you towards the future, things that must come hereafter. So let's just look at the reading of the Word quickly. It's pretty much self-explanatory. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. One sat at the throne... And he that sat was to look like a jasper, a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in the sight like unto an emerald. There he's looking into heaven. Now I'll, I'll take you back to last week's teaching just for this word, harpazo. It says here that uh, the heavens were opening. It says, he said, come up hither and I will show thee things. Come up hither, which is harpazo, same word for the catching away. I'm not going to reteach if you want to see about the rapture of the church, watch last week's teaching. Same word, harpazo. This word was taken from the Greek verb harpazo, meaning to seize up, spoil, snatch away, to take oneself, especially used of rapture, and there's the references. Harpazo is translated called up or called away. Uh, five times. When you go into the Latin Vulgate, the word there for harpazo is a, is a Latin word, rapio, 
you got rapio, then harpazo, and rapio is where we get the English word rapture from. Now, we see harpazo here is in 1 Thessalonians. So John here, he says that he was beckoned by the Spirit to come up. In other words, he was called, called to come up to harpazo. When we have the presence of God around us, we are being called to harpazo. And uh, that's where I say a lot of people have a problem with the term rapture of the church. Where I'm like, well, you feel the presence of God, you need to rapture, you need to harpazo all the time. You, you, in other words, you're called up to be called up with Him. And there's a lot of times in prayer, in worship, y'all know what I'm talking about. Now, he says it here in uh, chapter 4, verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also sleep in Jesus, will God bring with Him? For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall uh, not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. So here we see He descends from heaven with a shout. The voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the uh, dead in Christ shall rise first. Now we see the trump of God there again, just like we did in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. It says, all of a sudden he heard this trumpet, and this trumpet was there with that harpazo, with this uh, catching away, with this coming up. Then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, come for one another with these words. And it says there in 17, we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds. So the word there is harpazo, will be called up. Now there's a difference in being called up and coming back to the earth with Christ. That's the reason there's a difference in rapture and the second coming. What? In the rapture, in this scripture, the, the good people's leaving. And in the second coming, you know, we're coming back again. So, and when you look at the, 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 the scriptures, one in the field will be taken, left, and all that, that's what it's speaking about. Now, I won't spend much time on that. But we'll meet him in the air, we'll be called up to meet him in the air. That's a distinction. There again, people today don't want to use distinctions, but when it comes to the Word of God, you have to be very distinct with what the words say, because believe it or not, God meant what He said, Amen. and it's and He has He's very He has distinct uh, words and thoughts, and we see here, there it is, a Greek word harpazo. A vulgate, it's rapimir, rapimir is a proper tense of rapio, English words rap, rapture, uh, which is the past participle of rapio. Now, where I want to move into with that idea, it says it will be caught up with him in this catching away, this being caught up. Now, I'm, I'm doing this in light of, and I hope you're catching this, I'm doing this in light of John being caught up. Right? You say, well, Alan, what's the rapture of church and, and John? What, here's what it has in common. Anytime you see that word, you are entering to the presence of the Lord. Can you hear me? Now, the presence of the Lord is the greatest, uh, for a lot of us, it is a, a, a great frontier yet to be discovered. 
we tend to think that uh, what presence of the Lord that we have experienced, we tend to believe we have experienced all there is to experience. Because out of our pride, we think if there was more to experience, we already would have. But if you erase the pride, you know that what experience you've had in the presence of the Lord is probably very elementary. But there's a lot more to experience. That's what we want to consider. Could there be more of the Lord to experience than I have experienced up to this point? And we need to stay open to that, lest we think we have achieved some great honor of the level of experience that we had. I'm not saying we don't honor the experience we've had. I'm just saying there's more. And when we get into this word rapture, the big debate is over one event in which this terminology is used over and over and over in Scripture. It also speaks about us being caught up. I want to look at us when we were caught up in this thing about the house. It's in 2 Corinthians. For we know that our earthly house of this tabernacle, if it were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we, we get this terminology here of a house. We've got this house that we have on the earth. But then he says we're going to have this other house. And you've heard it said before. I'll say it again. I have been born again. That's my spirit, man. I am being born again, which is my soul. And I will fully be born again when I get my new body. So in light of that, I can say I'm not fully born again yet. All right? Just for studying and understanding's sake. The fullness of my born-againness is when I get my new body. And I don't have it yet. promise you I don't have it yet. When I woke up this morning, I knew I did not have it yet. But we are going... So, the, so what he's speaking about here is the fullness of being born again. It's the fullness and that's when we get this house, it's not made with hands. That is, can somebody say that's a big deal? It's a huge deal because when we get this house, that's kind of graduation day of this born-again experience. So I think it's incredible, wonderful. But it's a big deal. That's what I'm wanting you to see. The word house here, the Greek word is okotaron, uh, which is the only other place we see it. Now this is the only other place. For this Greek word, this house, is in Jude 6. And here's what it says. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved an everlasting change under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. And this is the only other place that this is mentioned. Now the first estate, do you see here, and the angels that kept not their first estate. First estate is Akaror. Principality, a magistry of angels. So we know that it's speaking about the angels, which it says at the beginning of Jude 6, the angels which kept not their first estate. Habitation, it says, but left their habitation. You see that in Jude 6? Habitation is okateron, or dwelling. So as we can see that the angels left their dwelling. 
Well, that's the same word, house made not without hands. It's the same thing. So the angels left their perfected house. Isn't that something? That's the angels that were cast out of heaven. They left their first house. They came to earth. We know the story of the Nephilim and Yon Trevor taught on it. Who is it? It's this crowd that left their first house. Now, this is interesting to me because in Corinthians, we're in the earthly house and we're going to this house that wasn't made with hands. So here we got angels loses theirs. Let, let me put it to you like this. All right, we got an earthly house, first estate, habitation. So we had an earthly house, the first estate of the angels is his supernatural body. But they left their habitation, and we gained the house made not with hands, which that means, here's what happens. When the angels left, we look forward to that heaven. What the angels left, we look forward to that heavenly body and destination. The angels left it and came here, and we're going. Not only that, we're going to gain this new habitat, this new body. We're going to get this new body, the fullness of born again, and we're going to meet Christ in the air. Now that's very important. That's the reason I say that is not second coming. There's two, that's two different, totally different events. And people want to do away with the rapture, and that's the reason I said last week, week if you do, you're going to run around heaven naked. You're not going to have your new body. Because that new body happens at this catching away. It says it. I'll show it to you. So we get that new body, and then it says, we will then see him as he is. What that means is, you, we don't see Jesus as he is right now. You've got to have the fulfillment of that new body before you can see him. The angels can't see him no more because they left that heavenly body. Are you with me? Now watch it. As we move forward, being caught up and in his presence. Now you've got to constantly, as a Christian, as a believer, as we are today, keep in your hands. And that's the reason I'm a rapture guy, is because rapture is more than just about the rapture of the church. Rapture is about everything in the spirit to a prophetic person, you see. And so we want to make the connection of in the presence of God. John was called up into the presence so he could see. We can now feel the presence of God here. If a door in heaven opens, then the presence of God fills the room. Elijah had an incredible encounter in 1 Kings 19.9 where he met with God on Mount Hebron after fleeing from Jezebel. While there, Elijah heard a great windstorm. But then he realized the Lord was not in the wind, but Elijah found him in a still small voice. Now, when you look at that in Hebrew, when he found him in that voice, he was harpazoed. He was caught away. Now, watch it. It was here that Elijah was comforted by God's presence and gained strength and courage to continue his prophetic ministry. It's in the presence of God that we gain the strength. 
The, being in the presence of God, that's the reason I say it's the greatest, last, front, un, unchallenged frontier of a Christian, of living daily in the presence of God. That's the reason you understand Paul when he says that he prayed without ceasing. He was always in communion with the presence of God. And I have to confess, there's, there's moments through the day that I know this truth and I try to seek that. And then there's times I don't. And I hope you don't have a, a video camera on me, right? Now in Psalms it says, David states, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with your joy in your what? Presence. The presence, being in the presence of God is huge. With eternal pleasures at your right hand. Encountering God in His presence. Now listen. What hinders us from being in the presence of God is our pride. Uh, we, th we feel like we're going to take God something. Hey God, I'll meet you at 530 in your presence and I'm going to bring you something and I know you're going to like it. In other words, it's like I've got some great contribution but when we enter the presence, our great contributions tends to hinder us from being in the presence of God. James 4, 8 says, come near to God and He'll do what? Come near to you. Now, I want you to keep in mind the reason for this is to make the tie between a harpazo, between being caught up. When you read about John being called up, he was called up in the presence. Then God gave him revelation because he was trustworthy. So how we live our life daily and being trustworthy with our spouses, with each other, all of that sets you up. All of that sets you up for revelation from the Spirit of God. Now, it's your move. It's your move. Now let's move quickly. Now being called up to an entrance or door, and I'm going to put this one in quickly. Being called up to an entrance, it speaks of it in the Scriptures here. There again, I want you to see it as John did. All right? Now, you might know the Scripture. I've told this story several times. 2 Peter 1, 9 through 15. But he that lacketh these things is blind, cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. You see that? If you, if you have forgotten that you have... If you've gotten too far away from that first day... If you've forgotten that you've been purged from your old sins, you're too far away from the cross. That's what he's saying. Then he says, verse 10, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly. Does anybody see that? I've got an underline. He says that there's an entrance here that will be administered Right there it says it. Unto you abundantly. Now this is not this eye of a needle that a camel get to get through. This entrance is huge. When this door opens, it's a big door. And not only is it a big door, when you're there, it's going to be administered to you. And into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So here's what he's saying. He is saying that we can walk through this door now 
even though we're here, like John, we can walk through this door now. It'll be opened into the kingdom of God. I've heard a lot of people say that, that they have been caught up into the third heaven, and there people say, I don't believe it. <coughs> Just because you ain't been there doesn't mean it's there. I hadn't been to Australia, but it doesn't mean it's not there. I'm just reporting to you the Word of God. That's all I'm doing. And he says, this opening will be administered unto you, and it's going to be abundant. And to the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is there a ringing in here a little bit? Or is it just me? It's what? It's not bad. Okay. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Peter says, I want to remind you of these things, though you know them and be established in this present truth. Yea, I think it meant as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up and putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even though uh, as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, uh, after my decease, to have these things always in your remembrance. So we know there he's alive. He's referring to this heaven unto the kingdom will open unto you now. Now if you read the scripture before 9, it talks about the divine nature. So what Peter's saying is you can have the nature now when we die and we're in heaven, we will have a divine nature. But what he's saying is we can have that nature now. You can have the nature and at least start on this new nature that you're going to have in heaven, but start on it now. And as your nature changes... This door is going to open unto you into the kingdom of our God. Now, now just because we're maybe not experiencing it doesn't mean the Scripture is not true. Now, I'm not fussing at you or myself. I'm just telling you what it says. And I'm also telling you that this is based on us being trustworthy with God. Sin and honesty makes a difference. If you want to get beyond day one of Christianity, Christianity has existed until now because there are some people that have walked through that door in the presence of God. So I just ask us as a church, we just come together for a few minutes on Sundays. But I do ask of us, it is available to us to have the presence of God in this place that is so real and it is so possible. Did you know in the presence of God that all of a sudden theology doesn't matter? Can somebody hear what I'm saying? It doesn't matter. The great theologian's in the house. What he says goes. Theology is what holds us outside of his presence. But in his presence, there is none. 
because we worship Him. And He takes over the scene. I promise you He won't break His Word so we can be comforted that God is among us and among His people so that those can come in that are hurting and are brokenhearted or sick. We can't help people be healed, but we can contribute to the presence of God in this place. And it's in that that we long for. Test what I say. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this day, and Lord, you know our deal. If there's anything that I've said that's all for not of you, I pray it'll fall to the ground. But if there's anything that I've said that's of you and of the power of your Spirit, I ask and pray, O oh God, that we could reach for that truth. We would not sidestep the tr truth, but we would reach for it. Call it our own. It is our call, O oh God, that you'd be present in this place in a tangible way. And as a church, we say we trust you. So come, Lord Jesus, is our prayer. Amen and amen.